0: This episode is brought to you by Tegas, the only investment research platform built for fundamental investors. Think about how hard you are working to get the insights you need to make a great investment decision, how many hours you spend digging through public records and expert transcripts, or manually updating those complex models. Investors should compete on their ability to analyze investments, not how well they aggregate data. That's why Tegas offers a unified end-to-end research platform that combines robust qualitative content sets, up-to-date financial data, management and culture checks, and more, all in one easy-to-use, streamlined user experience. 95% of the top 20 global private equity firms use Tegas. Learn more and get your free trial at teegas.com/patrick. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out JoinColossus.com.
1: All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions.
0: This is Matt Russell, and today we are going into the land of convenience stores to break down Casey's General Store. Today, Casey's operates in 16 states in the Midwest and Southern U.S. As of this recording, they have close to a $10 billion market cap and the number three player in their market. To break down Casey's, I'm joined by Marcus Hansen, portfolio manager and senior analyst at Bontoble Asset Management. We cover the industry of convenience stores, including the competition that exists in this market and the unique geographical considerations. We also cover the financial model, what drives gasoline performance versus in-store purchases, and what do all the margin profiles look like for the different segments of this business. This is another fascinating story hidden in plain sight. Please enjoy this breakdown of Casey's. All right, Marcus, excited to have you here on Business Breakdowns. As someone who's very fond of road trips, I'm quite excited to break down Casey's General Store I thought the best way to start would be to actually introduce the concept. I don't think our audience will be too familiar given the geographical focus of Casey's General Store. So maybe you could start there and just paint us a picture of a Casey's General Store.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for having me. Casey's is this beautiful Midwest American story of a convenience store. And when we think convenience store, what is the one thing that convenience does? It sells you the most valuable commodity, which is time the ability to get things done very quickly and have time to do other things. If you've ever driven down through Jersey or through Pennsylvania, you're probably familiar with Wawa and Sheets. And Casey's is the mid-American West version of this, but with some added twists. And in particular, it's fresh food product offer. And it's very famous for its pizza. So unbeknown to a lot of people, this is the third largest convenience store chain in the United States. The number one that you're mostly familiar with, probably 7-Eleven that's owned by the Japanese group Seven and I, and that's more of a franchise area. They're the biggest player. The second player is Circle K, which you see around the United States. That's owned by the Canadian group Couch So this is the largest American-owned, American-listed convenience store chain, but really operates in about 16 states in and around the Iowa. So the company started off in Iowa in the 1960s and developed over time, expanded out of its sort of a three-state base into about 16 states. So primarily today, Midwest, Southwest United States. The store, if you think about the convenience store layout, you have three formats. You've got the 3,000 square foot, which is a traditional convenience store size, 5,000 square foot one, and then the big one, which is the one where you have multiple gas stations where you can fill up along with a very large 7,000 square foot area. And When you walk into one, it's very similar to walking into a combination of a small grocery store selling all your convenient items that you find in a grocery store. A fresh food area where they have a baking area, a kitchen, doing everything from pizzas to sub sandwiches, offering donuts, coffee stations, and so forth. And then another area, which is the liquor area, which has a, what they call a beer cave where you can walk in and, and pick up various drinks. And then they also offer their own private label. And you're seeing more and more of this in the convenience store area. The beautiful story about the development of Casey's is how it started, and uh, actually not too dissimilar to how Walmart under Sam Walton started, which is a big focus in the early days on small rural towns, so areas where populations would be anything between fifteen to 20,000 people. These were often ignored by the large super chains, and that formed the base of the business going forward. And then from that area, they also added, and I'll get to maybe more detail on this, is one of their big strengths, which is they own their own logistics in terms of distribution centers and supplying. And that becomes important as you grow that base of stores because you get operating leverage. So to give you an idea, the company has been around since the sixties. It got to about a thousand stores in the nineties, and now we're at 2,500 stores. And in fact, actually just yesterday, they announced an additional acquisition of 63 stores with the view that they can probably grow this business to twice this size in the existing footprint of states that they operate. And from their distribution centers, there's currently three, they'll probably expand to another fourth one. They can supply these and there's significant operating leverage, which drives actually very nice margins in the business going forward. You touched
0: on the convenience store market and some of the other big players I'm curious, as a market, is it geographically fragmented where you have certain players dominating certain regions? And historically, what has stopped one major player from just dominating the entire space? What allows it to still have this fragmentation?
1: If you think about it, the modern convenience store stroke gas station, because it tended to go together, really evolved after probably the end of World War I, but then going into World War II as cars became popular and a form of transportation to get around, Today, there's about 155,000 e-store gas station type offers across the United States. Significantly fragmented in the sense that a big chunk of these, anywhere between 60 to 70,000 or half of these, are mom and pop chains. And if you think about it, if you drive into any intersection, if you're outside the cities in the burbs, every intersection generally has at least one or two players as you drive through. Sometimes there's a third one. It's generally at a major intersection. And one of those will be owned by a mum and pup. Those mum and pups will own anywhere from two to three to maybe 10. Then there'll be a small local regional chain, state chain that will own between 10 to 30. And then you have a national offer as well. Along with that, you have what was part of the traditional oil and gas companies. Remember, they had what was part of their refining and marketing division, particularly on the marketing side, whether it's Exxon, Shell, BP. Traditionally, this wasn't a way for them to make money. It was more of a branding exercise for their fuel but they are also out there, and in recent years, you've seen them sell out of these businesses because bulk of their money is going towards exploration, production, and then also their refining, where they make most of their money. But that's the other big owner, and then you have these other national guys who have been building through effectively buying up chains and rolling up. So 11 is the largest one. They recently, when I say recently, about a couple of years ago, completed the acquisition of Speedway, which was the old Hess stations that were rebranded by Marathon. They're the largest player out there, but even with their scale, they only have about an 8 9% market share. The second largest is the Circle K Group, and they have about a 5 6% market share. And then we get to Casey's, which with about 2,500 stores, only has about a 2.5% market share. And then you drop into all these other ones below. So still very heavily fragmented. What's driving these changes? A couple of things. Firstly, the bigger guys can get bigger because there are benefits from scale, both as we mentioned, the logistics side, but also the cost of running a gas station and a convenience store is getting expensive, whether it's just labor, but also EPA rules. When you pull into a gas station, you pump gas out, but underneath the ground, there's a big tank storing the gas. Those generally have to be updated and maintained and also put new ones in probably every 10, 15 years now. The cost of doing that has gone up three, fourfold in the last 15 years because of EPA rules for leakage and other things. That's very tough if you're a small player, if you own two or three stores. The other thing is, as we get into third generation ownership, there's less interest in actually working in these places. And then the final point is other regulations and pressures from town municipalities. Gas stations generally fall into that area of NIMBY, not in my backyard, because of all the stuff that they sell. So that gets harder and more expensive. And so that tends to play towards the bigger players. And then one final layer I'll bring is technology. And I know it sounds weird, but the technology to run your gas station, if you think about old dated gas stations, There'd be the sticker with the prices. Now all that's moving digital. That's expensive to put in and install and run. You've just generally got things like reward schemes, inventory management costs, and technology. If you're a player with several hundred stores, it makes sense to spend that money on that software where you get the incremental benefits. If you're a small player, you don't. And so the onus tends to be moving towards more consolidation driven by these larger players, and they themselves are then accruing the benefits of making the experience a lot better. I think 20 years ago, if someone said to you, you're going to go to a gas station to get some sushi and a fresh pizza, it was very questionable. <laughs> Today, you go into most convenience stores at the gas station and the amount of offer and range is significant. The quality of your product is very, very good. The final thing is good value for money. A medium pizza that could feed four combined with maybe a start of breadsticks or some garlic, that's about a $21 meal cost, which in today's inflationary world plays even more and more so. And it's convenient. You can order on your phone, pick it up on the way home, even if you go and pick it. So it plays into a lot of factors which are driving today's society.
0: Yeah, I think you tapped into a lot of the differentiation there already. But I'm curious for this business, if I'm driving on a highway and I get off, I might see four different convenience store options. And... It's tough to differentiate between them, particularly when you're on the road. How important is that traffic for Casey's versus what you were describing about the suburban community, where it's not something where it's just a grab and go on your way somewhere else, but it's a little bit more of a fixture inside the actual town.
1: If you think about a travel family, so your kids playing a travel sport, what are you looking for? You're looking for something that looks clean, has lots of options in terms of filling up, but also you know that when you walk into here... There's lots of options, whether it's the young kid, the teenager, someone who wants something which is cooked and warm, someone who wants something cold. Put all these factors together tend to play to these larger chains. And a bit like when you walk into any national brand, you walk into a Starbucks in California or a Starbucks in Florida, you know what you're getting. There might be some regional variations, but generally the same thing. And that's the benefit of these larger chains, what they're selling. Whereas if you walk into a non-branded convenience store, they probably carry some of the national but you're not sure exactly what they have. So I think there's habitualness in terms of and confidence and trust, and also the fact that these are good freshness, value for money offers. In terms of the actual gas station part itself, they're generally not always the cheapest offer. They don't have to be for the simple reason that if you're driving along you're thinking about just price of gas, the marginal price tends to be set by actually the smallest player. Why? Because they don't have these added offers that can help them make their profitability. They're pretty much just selling gas. And so they'll be the one who sets the gas price. And generally what we're seeing is the average gas price and the margin in it tends to go up over time, driven by the fact that the costs of running a gas station have gone up over time. And it goes back to what I was mentioning earlier. EPA rules versus 10 years, 20 years, 30 years ago have changed and generally gotten more costly. Wage costs, minimum wage or added benefits have gone up over time. And just other things where if there's a bar from health and safety, if you're selling food, health and safety costs are significantly higher. You have to have people manning these things. And the final thing is generally, if you're the one who's the bigger chain, you can operate 24/7, there might be other guys who are close certain hours. So those choices all come together very rapidly, and very often what happens is you see a orientation towards the bigger chains, big four courts, clean, more offers, your ability to get in and out, you probably spend about 15 minutes in a gas station, and you can get a lot more of that done at these national type chains. On top of that, there's the other things that they've been doing recently, and that's more new, but it is helping reward cards. Everyone likes getting points. Half the time, I don't even know what these points mean, but nothing better than you walk in and you're told, oh, you just saved $2.
0: Gamification, yep.
1: Exactly, yeah. And that plays into this. And then they offer things like the mobile app so you can book ahead and order things. Often, I'll be driving, my kids will be ordering as we pull in. Again, it's very hard to do that when you're on the smaller side. So all these things really paint into the experience. One interesting note, Casey's had an Investor Day just recently. They do this every three years to talk about their plans. And they did point out that 75% of traffic that comes into the store is non-gas related. So they do have the gas station where you come and fuel, but people are going here for other things outside of just buying gas for the car. And that's very powerful because that's the business at the end of the day that not only just drives the growth of the company, but also is where the bulk of the margin is made as well. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. You touched
0: on the history of the business looking slightly similar to Walmart in terms of the early beginnings. Is there anything unique about the founder story and the management team over the years? Any key decision makers that played a big role in the success of
1: Casey's? It's an interesting one because Gentleman, we started as a guy called Mr. Donald Lamberti. He's not involved in the business, but his son is on the board now. His son went on to get involved in local politics in Iowa. But basically, it started as a remodeling of a gas station into a convenience store. And then a friend of his, who was also a supplier, whose name was and the initials were K and C, and that's where the name Casey's comes from. He suggested the idea of buying another gas station and expanding. He started focusing and figuring out that there were these underserved communities where you have a captured audience and the bigger players just weren't getting involved. And that really was how they evolved. And I mentioned this is similar to Walmart because back in the day when Walmart started, you had Sears and and Kmart was out there as well. These were big giant players. Sam Walton figured out there's this area which is underserved and that's how I grow it. That helped them along the ways. And really, as they developed from a few stores and by the nineties, they got to the the thousand store, formed this core base of customer who was very loyal The brand was there, and that allowed them then to think about expanding in terms of larger and more urban areas. Even today, the bulk of their stores are outside the major city areas. In Illinois, they do have some stores in the suburbs of Chicago, but for the most part, these are still focused and concentrated on communities where you're looking at several thousands of population, not the hundreds of thousands and bigger. And within their footprint, they've done a very good job. And this is expanding now into the Southwest. So they've moved into Arkansas, Tennessee, Kentucky. And along the way, as I mentioned, you are seeing more and more of these small, medium enterprise or mom and pop chains who are selling out for a number of reasons I mentioned. And that's affording them the opportunity to expand in that area. The other thing I should have mentioned that Casey's does do differently as well is they traditionally own all the real estate as well. So with other chains, it will be a combination of leasing and ownership. The reason they like to do that is when they come in and buy a new format. So if I sell them a gas station there's on the small side, they'll come in and actually expand the design of the store to put that kitchen in. It's an expensive proposition initially, but that drives the long-term story, which is the ideal of selling fresh food on top of the grocery. And To put it in some context, I fill up the gas and I go into the store and buy something. They'll make a margin on the fuel. Margins right now on fuel, on average, are running between 30 and 35 cents per gallon, which is fine. It's not a bad margin. It's gone up, but it generally doesn't grow significantly from here onwards. But when I go into the store and I buy some grocery, which primarily will be national brands and so forth, but could be some private label, they're making a margin in the 30, 35% range. The fresh food is where you're generally making a margin, like any fresh operation, of 60% plus. And so growing that exposure in the mix of your products is where you really want to get consumers to keep coming back and buying. And so overall, that's the business that they're emphasizing. They're the fifth largest national pizza chain if you base on total value sales and very successful in what they're doing.
0: You mentioned before 75% of traffic is actually not tied to fuel. I'm curious, just from a revenue or profitability standpoint, if you were to break down the different segments of the business, maybe it's just fuel versus retail,
1: what would that look like? So revenue-wise, about 70% of the revenue is from fuel. But earnings-wise, from an perspective, it's the flip. It's a combination of grocery and fresh. It's just the nature of how this business, if you look at it from a revenue perspective, you, you might think, okay, gas stations, no interest. It can't be that great. It's too competitive. And in fact, the benefit of the business is this margin on the in-store sales. Another interesting thing is the, the conversion rates. Only about 25% of people who pull in to actually fill up with gas will then go into a store and do an acquisition. That can grow as well. So if you use the example, for instance, in Europe, that number is about twice the level. This whole idea of a nice convenience store where you can get food and other products developed from Europe. was brought to the States. I don't know if you've been on vacation in Europe and have actually driven down the highways or the motorways. And you go in and they have little areas outside, particularly in Southern Europe, where you can have a nice coffee, get a nice meal, and people hang out there. It's really this idea that you're going to be there, you have to go through there. Why not use that convenience time to do other things? And that leaves you time to do other stuff outside. And so that's why convenience and selling time is a very powerful draw. But if you can offer a really good quality product at a great price, people are going to spend their money.
0: I laughed to myself in Italy once when I pulled over at a gas station and I saw all these locals drinking espressos inside what was more like a cafe than anything. I thought to myself, they're probably the ones that know where to go. So it makes a lot of sense to translate that over here. You mentioned before, the cost of running gas stations has gone up between environmental standards, a lot more things out there stopping gas stations from being in operation. But you also said that the margin profile is going up. So what's allowing them to push on price and pass through more than just the cost? And how likely is that to continue into the future? Is that something that you expect will at least stay stable or is there more margin expansion opportunity coming through
1: that segment of the business? So a couple of things. Firstly, they themselves in store are now also offering more private label. And again... Specific to Casey's, a lot of this private label they can derive from their distribution centers. Anything they can leverage from their DC's is an operating leverage upside. They started really doing private label about 10 plus years ago. It represents about 5% of their in-store sales. They think they can get back to north of 10% because if you look across other convenience or grocery style chains across the US, it's anywhere between 10 to 15%. And think about it, these will be their own version of bottled coffees, ready to go stuff. They do their own version of chips and other snack foods. Lemonade, tea, Wawa has a great lemonade tea. Yeah, so there you go, You're a Wawa fan already. Things like this, and that's a nice margin adder. One other area we invest in separately is this idea of snacking as a growth part of traditional eating, and the nature of the stuff we're snacking on has improved dramatically as well. As I mentioned, you know, 20 years ago, you wouldn't go to a gas station to get food. Now you walk into whether it's a Wawa or Casey's, the options there are quite decent, several hundred SKUs, but also the nature of the product as well. It's not just one basic snacking. You get a nutritional version, you get a low calorie version, gluten-free versions. And so snacking has gone from something which was like an additional thing to actually becoming a mainstream one meal in every three is done this way. And certainly my kids, when they're on the road between their sports and school, gives them that added time. Whereas instead of going home and spending an hour preparing a food and sitting down, get this done in 10, 15 minutes. I'm not saying it's the best way to live life, but it's just the nature of fact we keep running short on time because we have so many other things going on. And that plays nicely into the convenience side. The other thing is when you go into a convenience store, you're also meeting an emotional need. You're craving a Reese's candy bar. You're craving the Wawa lemonade. Emotional sales, generally, you don't measure on how much they're costing you. And once you're in the store, it's not like you can compare and say, I'm just going to pop across the street and see if that's 10 cents cheaper. If it's the right price and you want it right there and then, and you're talking about individual product sales, so you're not coming in to buy the one week supplier pizzas or so forth. And so that gives you quite a lot of margin flexibility. The final part was, was coming back to what's helping to drive consolidation is the investment in technology. You go into a store today versus 10 years ago, There are more check-in stalls using technology computer boards where you can pick and select the makeup of the sandwich you want to do, the pizza toppings and so forth. That used to be someone who was taking that order and writing that down. That frees up that person to be in the kitchen or to be on the sales side doing the checkout. A lot more self-checkout areas as well. And it's not just in the convenience store area. We're seeing this. We're seeing this in supermarkets and so forth. That reduces an amount of wage labor, which can then be used for making stuff that's being sold a bit of a virtuous circle. and Again, that plays nicely to these larger chains who can invest in that technology. It also plays nicely to them on the inventory management side because they get all this ream of data of what's selling well at what particular time of the day, which allows them to make predictions that if it's this type of weather in this month, and we know that there's a sports game going on in this area, this product's going to be a hot seller around this time and so forth. And they do do that. If you go visit them, they'll explain they have these data centers who not only just track prices of fuels across, but also demand for products in different subsegments, at different times of day. Anything which you can save you money or working capital is cash flow, and that drives nicely into the business as well. The other bit I mentioned is they own their own real estate. That allows them to do a lot more. Their decision-making is a lot more flexible. They can figure out, this is doing very well. Do I expand this from a 3,000 to a 5,000-square-foot store? When you're leasing, it's a bit harder. So initially, the idea of going and owning the real estate could weigh on your return or invested capital initially, but it does pay dividends going forward. And that's why their track record has been pretty phenomenal.
0: Yeah. When you mentioned earlier that the technology is a piece of the story, I thought about it a bit and realized convenience store kiosks were one of the first mainstream things that I saw in play probably 20 plus years ago, where they were using kiosks for a lot of different things. And many of the other chains were slower to adopt these things like supermarkets and even fast food restaurants. So it certainly rings true. When you put it all together, what does a typical Casey store do in terms of margin? And you can talk about it at the overall business level or on an individual store basis. But what does the margin profile look like when you piece it all together?
1: This is a business which really should be able to grow its sales in the mid-single-digit range. With benefits of March, as I mentioned, there's economies of scale that come from growing the network size because the distribution centers are fixed costs, which they can then get operating leverage from. And to give you an idea, these when they build these distribution centers, they're about $100 million to put together. they are roughly about 250,000 square feet, which if you drive past a big Amazon warehouse, about half the size of an Amazon warehouse. But those can service, they say off the bat, about 600 stores, there's some redundancy in there that allows them to actually service about 1,000 stores, and that's within a 500 mile geographical range. So, when you look at cases, their argument is that in their current footprint, there's about 70% of that geographical area, which is still not served by them, where if they were to add stores, they could do from the DCs. That gives you a lot of economy of scale there. So, on the margin side, generally, they can probably get an incremental one, two, 3% of added margin growth there. So, EBITDA margins can grow. Eight to ten percent, if they can keep that sales growth growing. Where is it today? You got an average margin around between six to six and a half percent, which from a retailing perspective is quite attractive. Think traditional retailers, when I'm talking like food retailers and so forth, if you're making margins anywhere between two, three, or four percent, it's great. So this is higher on this. And then that margin growth going forward. The idea is that as you sell more grocery and particularly prepared food. should grow that margin up as well. Fuel margins have been actually pretty decent. The other bit that's played into fuel margins is you're seeing specialization. Pull up at the gas station, you generally see there's three options available. People are driving larger SUVs, higher-end premium cars. It's recommended that you buy the premium fuel. The added difference from 87 times to 95, there isn't a lot there, and yet the margin expands quite nicely. That's a very, very nice business. But the key for them is you're gonna to have to pull into gas up anyway. So while you're there, why not go in and spend some nice money inside? Keep in mind that the average ticket size when you walk into these stores, if you don't buy the prepared food, is anywhere between six to seven, eight, nine, ten dollars. And then if you do pick up added food, you're talking about another five to ten, maybe the pizza twenty. And that gives you an idea of the average spend when you're going in. So I think those margins generally can move up to higher single-digit range over time combination of sales growth, mid-single digit, some margin enhancement, you're looking at an EPS growth in the low single digits. And with the
0: fuel business, I'm just curious about the dynamics there in terms of getting fuel supply and the suppliers of fuel and the ability to adjust pricing on the actual gasoline in unison with that. So do they ever have quarters where they're stuck basically in between, where they've got extra supply of fuel and they're offloading that old inventory at cheaper prices and buying new fuel at, at higher prices. Does that ever create any cyclical dynamics or is it simply a pass through mechanism for them?
1: With a lot of these guys, they don't actually store their own fuel. So they'll buy from the fuel wholesalers. Where they do have their logistics, more than half their fuel they provide on their own big trucks that they deliver. And again, that plays into Casey's versus some of the other peers. There's this big emphasis on controlling as much of the logistics chain as you can without actually owning the underlying commodity. That also has benefits in that they are more of a bulk buyer as well from scale. There would be some benefits from this. Generally with pricing, and this is the interesting bit as well, and this comes back to the technology investment as well, as you remember, if you think of the old school forecourt, you pull in and the guy every morning would be getting up on the ladder, changing the stickers for the price and so forth. And A lot of that's now changed to digital pricing. So if you pull into a lot of modern forecourts now, the pricing which is shown can actually become more dynamic during the day. And what they do do is a combination of using data technology to monitor what nearby pricing is doing and will adjust their pricing accordingly. Now, again, they're not specifically driving the price of gas that they'll have to sell in their local corner or square or town where they're selling. That tends to be determined by the guy who has the highest costs and needs to cover those costs, which tends to be the smaller players. What they are doing is, if you are really focused on gas price, they could be marginally less or they could be matching it. But then as you look at the two forecourts, you like... Okay, that one's only got two gas areas, it looks a bit messy, doesn't look like it has a bathroom, and I'm kind of feeling kind of hungry. And then across the street is this beautiful, shiny, nice, clean, lots of lights, lots of areas you can park. Oh, it looks like some people are having coffee. And I know I can get some food there. That's the immediate sort of two second decision you'll make and you'll pull in. And then once you've been in once, you know it. And so when you see the next cases, you're probably gonna pull in again. And again, generally safety when you're pulling into a gas station, particularly late at night or early in the morning, is a key factor. So particularly women drivers feel more comfortable going into a larger chain. If you're with your kids, you feel more comfortable going to larger chains.
0: Yep. If it's 1am and I need to use a bathroom and I'm going to have to use a key, it's going to be a no for me. (laughs) And I'm willing to pay more than an extra penny or two for the gas as well. That's an easy way for me to make the decision. When you start thinking about the growth strategy, you mentioned a little bit in terms of the opportunity based on logistics presence. How do they go about that in terms of expansion and going into new territories? It sounds like it's still very geographical based where they feel like they haven't saturated the markets that they're in. Are there opportunities to expand into other states or is it mostly just focusing on their core markets and getting more penetrated there?
1: Right now, the business originally centered around Illinois, Missouri, and Iowa. And then they expanded into sort of the ancillary states. What they like to do is look at their distribution centers, because this is really what they're leveraging on the operating leverage side of the business. You draw a circle of 500 miles from which logistically it makes sense to operate. So actually, even yesterday, they announced an acquisition of some 60 stores. Is a predominantly Tennessee-based operator. Because of the nature of its ancillary and Geographically next door is people who had been maybe driving one part will see cases and they know it. And so it becomes a network effect of, oh, another case is opened up in the area. And then it becomes a word of mouth thing as well. So that's generally how they're expanding right now. They seem very happy with this Miss Western area. It's an area where the competition is slightly less from the national chains. Why? Because I mentioned there's a lot more smaller towns, but you do have significant traffic going through in terms of freeways and highways. Where most of their competition in these mid-sized area tends to be is from traditional QSRs like Domino pizza chains, the other fast food chains as well. You do have supermarket chains which have started to offer their own version of convenience as well. And then you have the dollar stores, which also cater to a significant part of this population. But again, the key leverage there is this idea of the fresh and the other stuff, and then also the branded private label, whether it's the drinks and other bits and pieces. For now, they're happy in their expansion areas. I think we'll see more and more of this move. If I'm looking at their scatter map right now, really adding it, probably we'll see more and more in this southwestern area as well. And what you do have is you have these regional chains which tend to dominate these certain areas. So, for instance, Wawa will dominate the Jersey area. If you go down to Pennsylvania, you'll see a lot of sheets. Wawa has been expanding further south. I think you go to Florida, in particular, there's a big following of Wawa down there as well. These are regional players. And as I mentioned, from a market share perspective, they're still relatively small. Do they go national at some sort of footprint? We'll see. There are certain states where it's not as attractive to do business. So if you speak to the larger players like Circle K, California, because of particularly onerous regulations, is not an area where gas chains really want to expand in a big way. Since the pandemic, we've seen a change of where people are looking to live in terms of cost of living, and that tends to play into areas where they are. To give you an idea, they gave this stat at their recent investor meeting. They operate in 10 of the 20 cheapest cost of living states in the United States. The average salary of their customer is in the fifty dollars to $60,000 a year range, which when you come from the big city sounds low, but the cost of living in these areas is very, very attractive. That's attracting more and more people to live, but also you're seeing more and more industry moving to areas where the cheaper cost of living. So they tend to be in growth markets in terms of states of demographics. Because these are more rural, it's a place where you still need a car to get around. And then if you think about just the nature of there's a lot more driving, your car is needed to get around... And so you're driving more. So it's one of those stories where you have to go visit and see it because when you're sitting in an office in New York and you think about your daily lifestyle, this is very, very different.
0: My favorite type of business, for sure. With the expansion and the decision to acquire and retrofit versus new build, how hard is it to build a new gas station? I imagine there's a lot when it comes to the environmental dynamics on top of not in my backyard, but is it even achievable to grow that the way they want to grow without
1: acquiring existing stores the growth profile they're putting out is on average they're looking to grow their footprint anywhere between 100 to 120 stores a year and that's off a base of 2500 on the acquisition side they're looking for about half of that to come from acquisition and half from new build now again it's very hard to know when these portfolios become available so for instance the 60 stores in tennessee was a larger, smaller, medium enterprise. Most often when they're dealing with the smaller players, you're looking at between five and 10 stores. And then occasionally you'll see some of the larger oil and gas companies decide to get rid of a portfolio in a certain area because it doesn't make any sense for them. Ideally, there are benefits from a new build because you can start fresh and do so forth. But then at the same time, coming back to your point about NIMBY, the fact is the number of actual gas stations available hasn't really grown in recent years because even if people need them, the fact is most people don't want it nearby. So generally, newer bills tend to be when you find newer developments, there'll be one built. But mostly in existing areas and towns, it's about coming in and buying that footprint. Now, that's both a pro and a con. It's a pro in the sense that if you get that piece of real estate, it's very valuable. It's unlikely, particularly if you're particularly in a more denser area, that someone's going to be able to rock up across the street and build a new one. It just doesn't happen. So that's the value of the real estate over time as these towns grow and develop, becomes even more valuable. And remember, the NIMBY factory is not just gas, but also two two of the key products they sell in their stores are cigarettes or, or anything related to smoking, and then liquor. Some would argue these are the sin products, but a lot of not-in-my-backyard products become available. And that also creates a captive audience where you know it's one of the few places you can go and where you can get it.
0: I think I already know the answer as to why they don't franchise their stores and many of the benefits that they're getting from operating themselves, having this larger and larger ecosystem. But when you look at them versus the competitors that do franchise, is this something that ever comes up in terms of investor conversations with the management team? What's the thought process behind that and the pros and cons to it?
1: Right now, no. Who knows down the road, maybe franchising allows you to expand a lot quicker. Generally, though, from a quality control perspective, it can be harder to manage because their onus is driving the growth of the business, particularly on the margin side from the kitchen and the fresh. Controlling that, I think it's important to ensure that pizza they're selling, whether it's a store in Iowa to the one in Tennessee, has the same level of quality and product. And because they've decided to take this approach of having their own distribution center as a driver of operating leverage of the business and controlling the business over time, behooves them to keep that control. And I think they would argue the flexibility it gives them in terms of how they can decide on the fresh product they offer and the changes they need to do is beneficial versus that attraction of just ramping revenues through franchising. So I don't see it happening. Generally, I've also found that if I look at companies like Casey's, like Wawa, like Sheets. People do like 7-Eleven. Don't get me wrong. There's the slushy there that everyone likes and so forth. But for the product in terms of all the food, that brand awareness, that brand loyalty tends to be these companies that own their real estate, which is exactly what those other two do as well. And it's something which we're seeing, for instance, the other big player, which is Circle K Kushtard, one of their policies which changed has been towards trying to own more and more of the real estate as well. And that also gives you other options. One thing which is new and growing is this idea of the automatic car wash. So if you go to Europe, it's very, very popular. When I was a kid, I used to make some extra money going washing cars on the street, right? You take your bucket. You can't do that in certain places now. Why? Because there's EPA rules about what water goes into the drains, chemicals, and so forth. So one of the replacements of that is you pull up and there's an automatic car wash. And these things are fully run. It used to be lots of people, lots of labor. Now it's automatic. And you'll see this at some gas stations now. you pull in and they'll say... By the way, you're filling up, would you like a discount on doing the car wash, which takes you another five minutes, you get it done and dust it. And so owning your land and the ability to say, I'm going to invest that money and install it there is very different to where you're leasing. So it's a long-winded answer to get to your point. But I think specific to Casey's, the emphasis on the kitchen side of things, the freshness and leveraging their distribution centers probably means the franchising side is not there today.
0: No, it's really interesting. I thought they had one-stop shop covered with food and gas, but then you add something like the car wash in there as well, and it just keeps giving you more
1: options. There's other things in there. Think about the Amazon pickup lockers. You're not just pulling up to get your gas to pick up the pizza. I'll just go pick up my e-commerce order. And by the way, I got the car wash. All done within 20 minutes, by the way. Something which, if you add it all together, would be maybe a two-hour event. Gives you time to do a lot of other things.
0: Do they ever have stores closed? Is there much churn on the actual store base?
1: With these guys, less so, there is still an expansion mode. What they'll often do sometimes is if they have two smaller stores and they get the space to do a bigger one, they'll maybe close two to move to another one. For the most part, it is incremental growth. And then sometimes in acquisitions, and it does happen as you get denser in certain areas, say you buy a portfolio of 60, five or six of those, you may dispose because it doesn't make any sense. But for the most part, this is an additive growth. We're not seeing a significant amount of disposal.
0: And I think we've talked a little bit about their own acquisition potential. But in terms of their attractiveness to another buyer, is that anything that comes up? Because I could see a case for owning several regional players and getting some of the benefits from the cost perspective. Is that something that gets brought
1: up much? Absolutely. The reason I love talking about this company is since we've been invested in it, I've seen it grow very, very nicely, both in terms of the revenues, the earnings power, the offer, the management has come through very nicely we can talk about that later, but the change of management really drove added growth potential for the group as well, which I think was a very smart decision. This company was approached for acquisition by both 7-Eleven and Circle K parent Couchtard back in 2010 for the specific reason that they have this very strong presence in some of these key growth states. It was rejected by the management at the time. Kudos to them. You know, This is when the company was only at about 1,000 stores. Since then, they've two and a half, they'll be on track to more than treble the size of that business over the next few years and done very well in terms of valuation of the company. There are benefits of acquisition in this space. It's heavily fragmented. Also, the nature of the synergies, once you put smaller chains into larger chains, can be quite attractive. So deals in the space generally are done for anywhere between 14, 15, 16, 17 times EBITDA. But the synergies from larger deals, and we've seen this elsewhere, can generally take maybe three to four points off that very quickly, The nice thing about this business is this is the nature of the product you're selling. The cash conversion rate is very fast and high. So the ability to deliver quickly from a free cash flow perspective is also very, very attractive. So very often you see deals happen, leverage bumps up, comes down very, very quickly because you're not sitting on a lot of long-term working capital product. Everything is consumed within a very short period of time. There's no cereal sitting on the shelf for several weeks. And just the ability to lever back office technology and so forth makes this very, very attractive. Some of the other larger payers, they would have to pay up for it though. This is a very good business. And the one thing they do, which others are copying, is this idea of the emphasis on fresh. And I think this is something we'll see others wanting to learn from the Casey side. The story on the pizza thing is pretty phenomenal.
0: You referenced the multiple range, I think you said 12 to 14 times EBITDA. Is that 10 to 12 or 12 to 14, is that the multiple range that Casey's and some of the peers are trading at?
1: In the case of Casey's, they're on about a sort of 9 to 10 times. That's on forward numbers. I think paying up to anywhere between 12, 13 times is pretty fair given the growth potential they have. Generally, when you get above the 14 times, you start to price in a bit of the acquisition option. This is also a company, by the way, as I mentioned, as they're gaining scale is also still small right now. I mean, I think the dividend yield is less than 1%. But they have put in place, and particularly under this new management since 2019, the idea of actually growing a nice steady dividend as well. So they want to become a bit of a dividend story play going forward. They're very underlevered, generally a lot of free cash flow. So they've been doing some buybacks recently as well, but mostly the focus here is this idea of becoming a dividend story over time as well.
0: It sounds like they're still investing in the store growth, which I'm sure eats up a lot of the capital budget and free cash flow. Is there an inflection point where that starts to transition more towards returning that capital to shareholders?
1: Right now, it's a good balance between the both. They found themselves in a situation where they're very undelivered relative. I mean, it's the type of business that can easily carry two to two and a half times leverage if they have to do a large deal, maybe three times. Right now, they're running at about one-ish. And part of that is the scale of the company. Like I said, They've added 1,500 stores in the last 10 plus years, really grown the business. And I think that we'll see them adding maybe a 1,000 stores in the next few years as well. And there's significant free cash flow generation because of the nature of the model. But I think the fact that they've talked about this dividend policy, that dividend probably grows faster than earnings over time. I think they can balance both. I just want to come back to the management because in 2018-19, there was a change of management. This traditionally was run by very much the same management that had been there. And and remember, the company had changed. It had been really a six, seven-state business, which was now in 16 states, gone from one distribution center to three distribution centers, much larger footprint. They took the decision to look outside the business for senior management. And the CEO himself actually was originally 7-Eleven. He also operated International House of Pancakes, IHOP. And so it was- Good pedigree. Yeah, good pedigree. He knew one of the bigger competitors, but also- Remember this emphasis on food and almost restaurant grocery style offering. And he really also brought in a lot of the emphasis on spending on the technology side. Why? Because he'd seen this at larger chains and how that could drive productivity, but also give management a better understanding of what's really selling well and become faster to responding to demands. He came in and brought a bunch of other people from other various industry experience, including fintech and technology side of things. There's other other added avenues, which I think they're considering down the road. The idea of a loyalty card, but also maybe some sort of digital wallet. And then also with the loyalty card, they can start selling you bundle offers. So every time you buy five pizzas, get the six one for free, or if you fill up a certain amount of gas, you'll get the pizza thrown in for free and so forth. That's something which is still early stage right now. And I think they will look to grow and add. And I think that plays on the experience of the new management they're bringing in. From an ESG perspective, which is becoming more important, I think this will be their third year of reporting an ESG report. They're really working on everything on that side of things. They have a lot of senior management who are women in their area. And keep in mind, the background of Casey's was most of their store staff were women. And these women have grown through the management side. So we always think small, mid-American company, this must be a very male-dominated. It's actually a very diverse group of managers.
0: What do you see as the key risks for this business? And ask another way. When do convenience stores have hiccups when they do operationally?
1: One area which is going to be interesting is the shift to electric vehicles. This is government policy. This is just consumer habit is moving this way. will become a bigger pie of the overall transportation fleet. It's not going to happen overnight. I know there are ambitious targets set by the White House, but the fact is go to the car companies and so forth between logistics of actually building them, getting the stuff, but also charging stations is going to be a problem. But if we look 10 years from now, it's something they have, and they are preparing for this. So The evidence we've seen in terms of convenience stores and electric vehicles, probably the best market from a developed market perspective is Norway. So if you go to Norway, I think more than half car sales are now EVs. It's very heavily subsidized by the government. And there's a lot of things that go into it. But there's a market where EV penetration of vehicle sales is pretty high. The company that's had the most data on this has been Couch who owns Circle K. What they've seen is actually you do have this issue about, yeah, people can power up their EVs at home. But a lot of people forget to do it overnight, it takes a lot of time. If you want to go for the supercharger, again, you do get an NIMBY effect. It's very hard for most people to put a supercharger in their house because of transmission wires on there. Most gas stations tend to find themselves at the intersection of areas in towns the where there's also power cables coming over and so forth. So the area where no one wants to be happens to have most of the resources you need. What they found is people pull in. Generally, most EVs today to charge correctly at a supercharge will be a 15-20-minute event they're finding is people are going in, having a couple of cappuccinos, buying a few products, because you're there anyway, you know, you're not going to sit in the car. You go in and the average ticket spend is a bit higher. Now, the data is a bit incorrect in that most people who have EVs today, I would argue, are probably of a higher income cohort. So it probably isn't fully reflective of mainstream spending. But the early evidence is fairly positive. And specifically to Casey's, they gave data at their last investor day where they talked about... Less than 1% of the customer base, they see traffic coming into their stores, they believe are EV related. And that's mostly in their Chicago area stores. It's a threat to be aware of. It's still early though, because you and I have this podcast 10 years from now, the bulk of the fleet out there will still be internal combustion engine. And if you go out to the Midwest area they operate, it's trucks, it's big SUVs. You're not seeing a lot of Teslas driving around. As far as the C-Store format, any further regulation on cigarettes? And liquor. They are two areas where they do sell. Generally, they don't count on cigarettes being a growth area, but you are seeing this shift to vaping systems and so forth. And the fact is, there are still a lot of people out there who smoke. So unless that is banned and we go to prohibition, America's had prohibition before, so never rule anything out. That would impact sales. But right now, I don't see any of that coming down the horizon.
0: This has been an excellent conversation and I've learned way more than I expected to in terms of all the different dynamics on this business. What do you think the main lessons are that you can pull away from Casey's and maybe apply elsewhere when you're thinking about investing framework?
1: So something we look for very much in all our quality growth investments is the ability to develop a product which has branding power, because branding brings loyalty and trust. That generally means there's something there that can be priced different to a commodity product, and the ability to play into a structural growth theme. So in this case, convenience. And also the fact is bundling a lot of convenience factors together. Finally, the ability to generate decent cash flow so you can reinvest in the business. So in this case, in distribution centers, technology, and improving the product range to have a growth runway, which is very, very attractive. In the case of Casey's, you speak to anyone you drive through the US and say, Casey's, and they're like, oh, Casey's, I love Casey's. And that plays very nicely, just like you mentioned about your Wawa experience.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much, Marcus. This has been an excellent conversation. I've enjoyed it very much. I appreciate you joining us.
1: Yeah, thank you for your time. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com.